PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. on PA Books, Kevin Hazard, author of American Sirens. Kevin Hazard is the author of American Sirens, the incredible story of the black man who became America's first paramedics. Kevin, how did you discover this story of Freedom House? So in 2016, I wrote a memoir about having been a paramedic in Atlanta. And someone who read that book reached out to me and said, hey, I read your book. I enjoyed it. Um, uh, but do you know how it started? Do you know, have you ever heard of Freedom House? Do you know how all this work began? And I did it. So I started researching and very quickly. I realized that I was not alone, that this was this incredible piece of history that somehow had been allowed to slip through the cracks. And I just, you know, I became a dog with a bone at that point. I just kind of kept on it. You know, what was interesting about your story is that, you know, we kind of take paramedics for granted just to kind of assume that they were always there. But as you say in your book, mm -hmm. that, that wasn't the case, even as late as in the, the mid-1970s. Uh, and I was interested that uh, ambulance services were provided by funeral homes. That, that could not have <laughs> been a, a, a warming thought when, when a, a funeral home ambulance came by to help you out. No, I try to put myself in the shoes of someone who's having a medical emergency and calls for help. And, you know, a few minutes later, they look outside and there is a hearse with two undertakers walking up to their front door. But that was how it was in a lot of places. If you imagine, you know, so before World War II, there were advances being made and, and ambulance services were attached to hospitals. But the war um, was such a huge sort of... Uh, you know, magnet for people and material that, that the hospitals did not have so much as an extra bandage to spare. And so they jettisoned the ambulance services and it kind of bounced around to whoever would pick them up. In a lot of small towns, the only business capable of, of transporting bodies was the one that had been doing it, you know, since the beginning of time, funeral homes. So, you know, you have these undertakers who would be embalming bodies one night, transporting the next. Call comes in. They very quickly sweep the flower petals out of the back of the hearse. They load in a stretcher and off they go. And when they would show up at your house, oftentimes they would not have so much as uh, a bandage. You know, they would have to, if, if you were bleeding, they would ask for a towel from the family. So these people, these were people who weren't terribly well-trained or well-equipped, um, and you know who showed up in maybe the most foreboding vehicle that has ever been conceived. Um, you know the conflict of interest is is pretty obvious. You know an ambulance ride costs maybe twenty bucks. A funeral is several thousand. So really, <laughs> where do their uh, loyalties lie? That was one way. Another way was you know volunteer fire departments might transport, police departments might transport. So it's very much ad hoc, but the. The overriding theme was um, poorly trained, poorly equipped, and the result was a lot of unnecessary deaths. 
And you mentioned the police departments provided this service as well, and they they come in for a, they're a big part of the story that, that you tell here. Uh, describe what it would have been like to have been a patient in the back of one of these police ambulances. You know, I talked to a couple people who were involved in in this, and so kind of what they what they would describe is speed, essentially speed at the cost of all else. So, you know, you they would drive these um, these sort of wagons, like you know what what we once once might have called a paddy wagon. Um, that would have a military-style canvas cot in the back. And when you called them, they would rush out. Uh, two cops would show up. They would be in regular police uniforms, obviously, you know, with a, without a pistol, but just police. They would come in. They would grab you. They'd toss you on the cot. They'd run you back out. They would load the stretcher into the back of the wagon, and then both officers would jump up front, and then they would take off down the road. And so you're kind of, you know, in the back, um, sort of on this you know, speed rush through the city with lights and sirens blaring, but you're by yourself. So if you if you were going to die during transport, you're going to die alone. There's no one back there to provide you any type of care. So, you know, again, it's 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 not what someone who is in a every second counts emergency would would need. Now, one of the stories that you tell to kind of illustrate the state of uh, the ambulance services at, at the just before Freedom House uh, begins uh, its work is a story of David Lawrence. So who is he, and mm. what? How did that affect ambulance services? Yeah, that's a such an intriguing, sad, you know, sort of twisted story that you know ambles around, but eventually, sort of, in in a lot of ways, leads us to the creation of the ambulance service. So. You know, David Lawrence, former mayor of Pittsburgh, former governor of Pennsylvania, in November of 1966, he's considered the old line of the state's Democratic Party. And in the run-up to the gubernatorial election, Pittsburgh Democrats are having a, uh, they're about to have this, this big rally to kick off the final weekend. And they all meet and they're, you know, a thousand people in, in the audience of this, you know, auditorium and Lawrence gets up to to give his speech and he gets about six words into it and he breaks off and he collapses on the floor. There happens to be a nurse in the audience. So as panic sets out and someone rushes to undo his tie and somebody calls for help, this nurse, young woman named Karen McGuire rushes to his side, checks a pulse, finds that he does not have a pulse and she begins CPR. Well, while that's happening, as I said, someone has called for help. So a call has been placed to the hospital and a call has been placed to emergency services, which again was the police department. So at the hospital, doctors are busily preparing their response. They're getting a room ready. They're getting, they're gathering staff, they're getting supplies. Whereas the police are speeding toward the auditorium um, in their wagon. They jump out, they grab their stretcher. Um, there are sort of, Reports conflict to a certain degree, but there's an oxygen tank with them. Whether it's empty or broken, it's hard to tell, but either way, the result was the same. They had an unserviceable oxygen tank. They get to his side, they drop down. There's Karen McGuire doing her CPR. Um, you know, they just sort of nudge her aside and they grab Lawrence and they put him on the stretcher. Now, she is trying to explain at that point that he's in cardiac arrest, that he needs CPR or at least continued CPR. She she begins to mess with their oxygen tank, realizes nothing's going to come of it. By this point, the cops are, are rushing out of the auditorium, and the audience is sort of 
in the state of stunned silence watching this man who is the the leader of of their party being carried out uh they get outside karen mcguire quickly realizes that the police are going to put him in the back and not ride with him. So she squeezes herself into the back of this wagon. She jumps in, boom, boom, the doors close and they race off. So she tries to do CPR. I, I can tell you, as a bank, having been a former medic myself, it's a very difficult thing to do in a moving vehicle, especially when the person driving it um, does not take proper precautions knowing that you're standing up doing CPR. So she gets tossed around and is unable to do anything for the duration of this transport. So from the moment that the city's ambulance service has arrived, all care has stopped. Even though there is a trained nurse at David Lawrence's side, he gets no care from the moment that the ambulance service arrives, right up until the moment they arrive at the door of the hospital. And they get to uh, Presbyterian University Hospital in Pittsburgh. And they're met there by a doctor named by the name of Peter Saffer, who's a father of CPR. Um, he checks a pulse, doesn't find one, checks for breathing, doesn't find one sees Karen McGuire back there, she explains what has been happening. They bring him into a room. Very quickly, they're able to get heart rate on him. They're able to get a respiratory rate on him. They resume a blood pressure. But again, from the time the ambulance arrived until the time they got to the hospital, he got no care. And you know, we, we, we sort of hear these things about, like time is brain. Well, that was very much a factor in what was going on with Lawrence. So in all that time that he was getting no care, his brain is essentially dying. And so, you know, though they get other vitals back on him, he's brain dead. And he lingers in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And then eventually they remove him from life support. And his doctors, um, the hospital's doctors, everyone involved in his care sort of agrees that the reason that this happened was that gap in time from when the ambulance arrived until when he got to the hospital. Now, Freedom House would eventually become this pioneering ambulance service, but what was Freedom House created to do? What, what was it doing before it was selected to for this ambulance service? Sure. So there's a, there's a guy by the name of Jim McCoy who had moved to Pittsburgh from the South. He worked as a bricklayer. He, um, he became a civil rights leader. He's a union leader. He, you know, he, he became fairly well known. He was arrested several times for, um, protest marches in the city of Pittsburgh over, you know, uh, unfair hiring practices. He, when Martin Luther King came to town, uh, McCoy was one of the people chosen to meet him. So he had been around for a while. He felt as if he was not able to get anything done in the established organization. So he sets out on his own and he creates Freedom House. He calls it Freedom because he is breaking free from you know, the previously established organizations and, and striking out on his own. And what he specifically wants to do, he, he creates this organization, Freedom House, he puts it in the Hill District. And the goal is to provide job training opportunities for people living in the Hill. Kind of what he has in mind initially are maybe, um, you know, learning how to be a gardener or a plumber or a housekeeper, um, you know, not exactly the sort of jobs that are going to inspire and uplift people, but he's trying to grow. He, um, in order to make money, he, he buys a truck and they start delivering uh, vegetables to people living in the hill. So that's kind of where they are in right around this time is it's a small organization with big aspirations, hoping to be able to provide job opportunities for people living in the neighborhood, but as of yet, kind of you know stymied by conditions on the ground, um, 
and it's that but it's that vegetable delivery service that sort of that links them with all these wonderful things that are, that are to come for Freedom House. Now, in addition to Freedom House, uh, one of the key ingredients would be Peter Saffer, who you mentioned before. Talk a little bit about his background. He was the father. He developed CPR. Uh, how did that process work? Yeah, Saffer's an absolutely fascinating figure. I mean, just for a second, this is a guy who was nominated three times for the Nobel Prize in Medicine. I mean, just a truly remarkable man. He's born in Austria in Vienna. Um, his family sort of you know, by the skin of their teeth, survives World War II. His mother had Jewish ancestry. Um, that did not make life easy for them during the Nazi, Nazi occupation. They uh, were very nearly bombed out multiple times. Um, he was, Saffer himself, was almost brought into the German army. He sort of uh, creates a medical problem for himself to get a medical discharge. At the end of the war, he moves to the United States. And, you know, this is a guy who watched at very close remove the effects of the Second World War, um, the, the realities of the Holocaust. So he has this tremendous sense of survivor's guilt. He's wondering, why did I live when so many millions died? And because, you know, of course, there is no answer to such a question. He has to then say, well, then I need to justify my having lived and their having died. So I need to give something back. And that something back is going to be medicine. So he really throws his considerable energy and brain power into making life better for people every day that he's alive. So first way he does that is through CPR. Um, he originally trains as a surgeon, but he realizes this is a field that's been around for hundreds of years. I'm probably not gonna be able to change it or make a significant mark, whereas this new thing, this anesthesiology, this is just developing. This is probably a field in which I can innovate and 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 you know and, and make a dent in the world. So switches anesthesiology, and it's there that he comes across a study that says expired air, which you breathe out, contains enough oxygen to keep somebody alive. So he takes that little nugget of information, and he looks at a problem that sits in front of him, which is rescue breathing. At that point, what rescue breathing doesn't exist. So so what people do is they, if you have someone who's not breathing, you would roll them on their stomach and you would press on their back and you would wiggle their arms and you would hope that all this movement would somehow inflate and contract the lungs and move air through the body and Saffer looks at this and he knows there's no way this works so he takes this this article that he's gotten that suggests that expired air contains enough oxygen to keep somebody alive and he says okay so instead of all this wiggling and pressing what i'll do is maybe i'll just breathe into somebody and that will keep them alive. Well, in order to prove this idea that he has, which he's, he's, he knows to be true, he sets up a series of tests and he's gonna do 40 tests, eight hours each. And imagine for a second saying yes to this. So he reaches out to volunteers and he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. You're gonna be sedated and then you're gonna be paralyzed. And you're gonna lie on the floor of an OR at Baltimore City Hospital for eight hours. And in that time, while you are connected to monitors, and taped, uh, I am going to, or recorded, um, I'm going to use a method we both know to be ineffective. I'm going to use this chest press arm lift method uh, of rescue breathing, and I'm going to record your oxygen levels dropping. I'm going to record um, essentially you slowly dying, and then when you reach critical levels, I'm going to flip you over, and I'm going to save you using this new method. The hitch is 
I need to prove that anybody can do this. So I'm not myself going to do this to you. I'm going to bring in a Boy Scout who's 11 years old. I'm going to give him a 15-second crash course in how to provide rescue breathing. And I'm going to stand back and watch him keep you alive. Remarkably, he gets people to say yes to this, which tells you, one, either the world's, the man is the world's best salesman or he is onto something that people truly believe in. It's probably, I'm sure, a mix of both. Um, he gets his volunteers. He sets up his tests. And in, in, uh, at that time, Baltimore City Hospital did not do uh, operations on the weekend. So he would go into an empty OR. And at the end of all these tests, he releases his data. And it shows, it proves that rescue breathing, as he has envisioned, it works. He pairs that with chest compressions. And just like that, one fell swoop, you have CPR. He travels around the world with this idea um, he eventually meets the uh, the guy who owns Lairdall, which at that time, you know, if you if you think of the Rasasi and doll, which everybody's seen, that's the CPR mannequin that so many that millions of people around the world have practiced on. Uh, that's made by Lairdall, and in the late fifties, Lairdall is a toy maker. While in Norway, Saffer approaches Asmund Lairdall and says, "Hey, you know, I have this idea. I, I need somebody to make a CPR mannequin. Do you think you can do that?" And so, you know, Lairdal goes from struggling Norwegian toy maker to international maker of medical products that, that still is out there today. And when, you know, when this is done, he could very easily, I guess, uh, Saffer, um, he could easily retire at 35 and, and be a wild success. He could just go down in history and, you know, quietly reside as the father of CPR. But, you know, that's that's not how he was wired. And so he moves to Pittsburgh and, you know, continues continues innovating. So how does he get connected with Freedom House and persuade this organization to, to take on his idea of, of an emergency medical service? Yeah, so like, like I said, Jim McCoy is a, you know, he's the, he runs Freedom House. So he has, he has a group of people uh, who he's trying to get job training opportunities for. And as I mentioned before, he, he has this vegetable truck so there's a gentleman by the name of Phil Hallen who runs um, a medical nonprofit in Pittsburgh that is specifically uh, looking for ways to um, sort of patch holes in the public uh, health safety net that have been cut there by racism. And he sees the fact that people living in the Hill District of Pittsburgh have very little access to health care. And he happens to be flipping through the newspaper one morning and he sees this Freedom House truck delivering vegetables. And this sort of, you know, bit of genius strikes in Hallen's mind. He says, ah, these guys are delivering vegetables. If you can deliver a vegetable, I'm pretty sure you can deliver a person. So what I'll do is I'll go talk to this McCoy guy and I'll say to him, hey, maybe the two of us created an ambulance service that's run by people from the Hill, mechanics, drivers, attendants, the whole thing. Um, and we'll take people to and from appointments. And, and this will be a good job for people. And you guys clearly have the ability. You have a truck. You know, you can you can transport a turnip. Let's do this. McCoy says, fine. Um, he thinks this is a great idea. And they go to Presby, Presbyterian University Hospital in Pittsburgh, with this, with this notion, this very modest proposal for an ambulance service. Somebody says, oh, you should talk to Peter Saffer. He's kind of been talking about this. Saffer, prior to his meeting with these guys, had been working on the development of what eventually would become paramedicine. The word paramedic does not exist at this point. And Saffer is looking at the fact that if you have a heart attack or you are shot or you're choking at home, 
there's nobody who's going to arrive at your house with any kind of training. He is himself uh, had a very personal tragedy associated with this. His his daughter passed due to um, a lack of of pre-hospital health care. She had a very severe asthma attack and died. Um, and so he knows he's he's also again Safford was the doctor who received David Lawrence. Um, so he knows firsthand just how how wide this gap is and how much work needs to be done. So he wrote an eight month training course that he paired um, at the end with rotations in the OR, the ER, the ICU, OB, um, the morgue. I mean, as intense as anything done today, significantly more intense than anything up to that point that anyone had ever even considered. He redesigns the ambulance. If you think about that for a second, he takes it from the hearse and turns it into what we have today, the dimensions and the layout, where the seats are, where the stretcher is, what sort of equipment and medicines they will carry. He has all these things. He's essentially developed the paramedic, the paramedic training course, the paramedic's vehicle, the paramedic's equipment, but he just doesn't have the paramedic. So into this hospital walk Hallen and Saffron, or excuse me, Hallen and McCoy with this idea, this 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 transport thing. So they they have people, they do not yet have this sort of transcendent idea. And they walk into Saffer's office and sit down and they pitch him this proposal, which he immediately shakes off. He has no interest in, in transporting people back and forth to the hospital, but he just launches into his theory and he, he explains everything about what, you know, the, the, how many people are dying because, you know, there's no pre-hospital healthcare system and what could be done. And he talks about his training program and all these big ideas. And I mean, he's quite literally laying out the tenets of a medical revolution. I mean, EMS, paramedics as we know it, this is totally new in 1966. Nobody has thought of this. Nobody has done this. Nobody's tried this. This full spectrum training where someone will be able to deliver a baby, treat a seizure, uh, stop an asthma attack, work a cardiac arrest, you know, work on a diagnose and work on a heart attack. Nobody has ever done these sort of things. This is only doctors do this. So these guys are kind of blown away listening to Safford talk about this huge new you know, front in, in the medical field, they're impressed. And they say, look, this sounds like a great idea, but I don't think you understand. What we're talking about are ordinary people. Um, some are high school graduates, some are not. These are people who are looking for job training opportunities. These are not professionals. And of course, Saffer doesn't want professionals. He's trying to create a profession. Uh, bringing doctors into the ambulance has been tried and has not worked. Bringing nurses into the ambulance has been tried and it's not worked. Bringing laymen in with zero training has tried to not work. He needs to create a professional. And she says, see, this is precisely what I'm looking for. I'm looking for ordinary people who can be trained. And in fact, they need to be ordinary enough that this idea of mine is proven to be uh, easy to duplicate. You know, I, this has to be something that they can do in every city, in every state across the country. So I'm looking for exactly what you have. And Hallen and McCoy sort of, you know, exchange surprised glances and they say, if you're in, we're in. The only stipulation is it needs to be people from our neighborhood. This has to be people from the Hill District, meaning that the world's first paramedics who are going to go through Saffer's very intense training program and who are going to staff his advanced ambulances are all going to be black men from the Hill District. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. 
This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. One of those men would be was John Moon, and you talk a lot about his background, and you, you also talk about the first time he saw paramedics from Freedom House in the hospital. Uh, talk about his experience and why was why was that significant for him? Yeah, well, John is born in Atlanta, uh, in a neighborhood in the center of the city called Buttermilk Bottom, um, which was a, a fairly small neighborhood, you know, maybe a square mile in the center of the city that does not have running water or electricity in the 1950s, which is, you know, quite a shocking fact. Um, it's an all black neighborhood, uh, obviously incredibly poor. His mother died when he was very young and he wound up in an orphanage. When he was seven or eight years old, he got adopted by family he did not know that lived in Pittsburgh. So he's transported from, you know, this sort of very strange life that he's lived up to this point either in, in poverty or in an orphanage, suddenly finds himself in a family. Uh, he, it was a very difficult transition for him. And, you know, he kind of rebelled for a little while and it really had a difficult time trying to find his place. But he slowly begins to come of age and settle into the world during the civil rights era. So he's watching marchers and sit-ins and freedom riders, and he's seeing the world slowly change around him, or at least the opportunity for change. And so as he moves through high school, he begins to think to himself, okay, the world that I'm going to inhabit will be different than the one that my parents inhabited. And I will have opportunities that weren't available to them. And I will be able to go places and do things that they never dreamed of. Well, he graduates from high school and very quickly realizes this is not the case. You know, 1968, the idea of change is in the air, but the reality of it simply is not. His first job is in a steel mill. Um, supervisors are white and the workers are not. And he just doesn't see a way that he can climb that ladder. So he leaves the steel mill and he winds up as an orderly at Montefiore Hospital, um, which he got into because somebody told him that medicine was sort of this, you know, wonderful field where anything can happen. And he sees it, he sees the reality of that. He looks around him and he sees doctors and nurses performing medicine. He sees the excitement and, you know, all the possibilities that medicine provides, but again, he does not see that for himself. He doesn't see anyone that looks like him rising to those levels. So once again, he sees, you know, he's on the outside looking in and he isn't sure what to do about that. And then one night, late at night, in the middle of winter, 1970, he is in a patient's room and he hears the sound of a two-way radio crackling down the hallway. And he sort of stops and he turns, and he's wondering, well, you know, what is, what is this radio? He hears this sort of disembodied voice that's floating up from this radio. And he walks through the door and he looks out and down the hall, pushing a stretcher, come two black men in these white uniforms, again, with this two-way radio on their hip. They walk in and they speak to a nurse in a way that he's never spoken to a nurse. The nurse responds to them in a way that the nurses have never responded to him. There's this level of, of mutual respect and understanding. They are clearly in control of, of the situation. And, you know, that moment for those two paramedics is very mundane. They were taking a guy out of the hospital. They were not bringing a life-saving, you know, or a critical patient into the hospital. They were doing something that to them was very ordinary. But to John, this was an extraordinary moment because of the way that they were being received and, that, and the way that they were conducting and carrying themselves. And he watches them and he sees they have these patches on their uniforms and one says Freedom House and another says paramedic. He's never heard of Freedom House. He has no idea what a paramedic is. But as he watches those two men drift out of the hospital and off into the night, 
he recognizes in that moment that this is the thing through which he can make his mark. And he decides right then and there that he's going to find a way to become a paramedic. Now, um, Peter Saffer, he contributed a, a lot of ideas to the development of uh, what would become paramedics. And as these ideas were being implemented, you know, how, how did they find people to be, to be trainees for this program? <laughs> This is not, you know, this goes back again to how great of a, a salesman the man must have been. The sales pitch is, hey, I want you to upend your life. I want you to join an eight-month training course that's going to be five, sometimes seven days a week. It's going to be days, but sometimes also nights. Um, it's going to be incredibly difficult. Many of you, almost half of you will fail out. And when you finish, uh, you may or may not have a job because this industry may or may not exist. Um, even in a place with a very high unemployment rate, that was not an appealing opportunity to a lot of people. And so on the eve of when they're to begin this training course, Saffer reaches out and says you, to the Freedom House volunteers, and he says, you guys got to do something. We don't have anybody to staff this class, and we need we need at least 48 because he he plans to put 24 people into the field He's anticipating that a number of them will not make it through. And so he needs a large number of people and they have almost nobody. So the staff, you know, basically scrambles and they run out to the street. Um, one of the volunteers said that uh, she chased down anyone not fast enough to get away. One of the guys drove around in his car and was offering free dinner to anyone that would follow him back to the Freedom House headquarters. Um, they basically find anyone who's walking around, sitting around, hanging out, talking, and they, they, kind of physically pull them inside and um, and convince them that, hey, this is this is a great opportunity. And I know it might not seem like it, but this is a cutting edge moment and you have an opportunity to be a part of it. And the men who said yes and the men who stayed and, and took that opportunity, when you listen to their stories, it's quite clear that they recognize in this strange new field, this way, uh, to make their voices heard, for the world to have to reckon with them. They, they come from a neighborhood that, you know, had been overlooked, that had been looked down on. Um, they were referred to in the press as unemployables because they were black men from the Hill District. So they knew that what the world thought of them. And this to them was an opportunity to, uh, to upend that expectation. Once this program was up and running, how long did it take for them to get national attention that they were doing pioneering work? It's almost immediate. It's really amazing. You know, you said before, it's hard to imagine a world without them. This is one of those rare innovations. It's sort of like the internet, the instant it arrived, you can't envision living without it. Right away, when Freedom House starts working, they, you know, people begin to pay attention because, I mean, think about it, before they arrive, you're having a medical emergency. The people who show up at your side have no idea what to do. All they can do is rush you. So you're, you're better off not calling them. You're better off just throwing them in your own car and taking off. And suddenly, the people who arrive at your door have been trained for nine plus months. They have narcotics. They have therapeutic drugs. They have cardiac monitors, which they can not only read, but also transmit to the hospital. They have oxygen, they have trauma equipment, they can help you deliver your child, they can stop your seizure. They have this huge spectrum of drugs and they have the training to properly use it. And when they walk through your door, they are prepared 
quite literally to save your life. This is a brand new thing. And so immediately people begin looking at this and saying, well, wait a minute, what, what is this program? How are you, how did you tra train these guys and what are you giving them? So doctors from um, other cities, other regions, healthcare administrators from other cities, other regions begin coming in to look at Freedom House to see what they can do and how they can borrow from it. And Saffer, in much the same way that he did with CPR and with the CPR mannequin with Lairdall, in his mind, this should all be open source. And anything that, that he does in the name of medicine should be freely given out to anyone else who wants it. So he goes out and helps create the National Registry, which is to this day, the number one certifying agency for EMTs and paramedics in the country with the idea of, of you know, uh, forwarding his training program to anyone who, who wants it. And so there are cities large and small around the country that begin borrowing bits and pieces of this thing. Um, within a year or a year and a half of their operation, a study is done just to see how effective are these guys with critical patients. And they look at critical patients brought to the hospital by Freedom House, by the volunteer fire department, and by the police department. They find that the police department is doing the wrong thing with critical patients 60% of the time. The volunteer fire department is doing the wrong thing with critical patients about 80% of the time. And with critical patients over that same span, Freedom House is doing the right thing 78% of the time. So by any metric, these guys are a wild success and people around the country very quickly begin to realize that, that, that this is something that can and does work. So give, given the success that you're talking about, how, were, how was Freedom House seen by the city government? Well, initially, it's very, um, you know, it's very positive. There's there's a partnership. Uh, Mayor Joseph Barr is involved in its creation. He's involved in the inception. Um, $100,000 is set aside as an operating budget um, with the idea or the expectation that they're also going to fundraise to get some of their money. It's a public-private partnership. So the city initially is very much behind it. Um, but that begins to change in, in 1970. A new mayor, uh, Peter Flaherty, is elected. And you know he says kind of from the beginning, I don't like the sort of public-private partnerships that were a big part of the previous, um, previous administration. Freedom House is not the only one. There are transportation projects that, that he pushes back against. But you know from the start, it, it's clear that he's not a fan of Freedom House. The operating budget is cut from $100,000 to $50,000, even though the uh, city's head of public safety acknowledges that they're doing a wonderful job. He just says, well, they're doing a wonderful job. They're just going to have to continue doing a wonderful job with half the money. So that is the first indicator that things have changed. Um, from there, it kind of begins to snowball. There's a lot of pushback about whether or not such a thing is feasible. The idea of practicing medicine in the streets, even though they've been doing it since 1968, even though it has become uh, a given in places like Los Angeles, Miami, San Francisco, Seattle, Jacksonville, DC, New York, Chicago. It's popping up all in smaller places, Columbus, Ohio. It's popping up all over the place. There's this idea within city and county government in Pittsburgh that, well, this is very much a theory and it's still being tested. And there are, you know, sort of equally impressive opinions on both sides of this coin as to whether or not it's it's viable. This to, to Saffer is you know, sort of mind blowing. And what results is a very public argument that sort of spills out into the press uh, and goes on for years in which 
Saffir on one side, local government on the other, are sort of pushing back and forth on whether or not this is something the city should have, this is something the city should fund, this is something the city should support, expand. Um, you know, a lot of justifications are given for why Freedom House is not allowed to move outside of the Hill, Oakland, and downtown. They're the only three parts of the city that they're allowed to exist in. There's an expectation that they will become self-sufficient financially. And the argument from the other side, from Freedom House, is, well, if you want us to be self-sufficient, you have to let us be big enough that we can actually begin to take in some money in order to, you know, to, uh, to pay the bills. They offer to do it at a cheaper rate than what they're do what the city is presently doing with the police department. The mayor is very reluctant to do away with the police ambulance service because you know the police union is very powerful and he doesn't want to make them angry. He's already made them angry. He's uh, dismantled the tactical units. He tried, but then backed away from uh, integrating certain street patrols. So his relationship with the police was not great, um, and this was not something that you know he was willing to do to further aggravate them. So he was not going to dismantle the police ambulance service, even though it was more expensive and it was clearly not very good. So the relationship is is tough and it, it remains tough. At, at one point, they say that Freedom House is not allowed to use their sirens downtown. So once they cross this barrier from the hill into downtown, they have to shut their sirens off, which means effectively that they're not responding in an emergency mode, even though police and, and fire trucks can still use their sirens, they can't number of rumors are spread about what happens in the back of these ambulances. You know, um, nobody ever knows where they come from, but they're very difficult to get rid of. There's, you know, whispers that, oh, they're selling drugs in their ambulances or they're they're playing dice games out of the back of these things. And none of this is in any way true, but it serves to hurt the service. It, it serves to sort of set this little bit of doubt in people's mind that, well, is this thing really good? Is this thing worth our money? And you know, that official, uh, that lack of official recognition, that lack of official support trickles down, of course. And so it, it you know, leads to everyday people sort of questioning the legitimacy of, of what Freedom House is doing. Now, another figure uh, who was key at Freedom House was Mitch Brown. Who was he? Yeah. So Mitch Brown's a local kid, grew up in the area um, went into the Air Force. He was a Vietnam veteran. Um, came home, and he it, he was not exactly sure what he was going to do with himself. Um, but he sees ambulances racing up and down the street. He had been a medic in the military. Uh, he was familiar with Peter Saffer's work, which is a, a <laughs> he's an incredibly bright, ambitious guy. And um, he sees these ambulances, and he he hears that Saffer's involved in it and he thinks, all right, this, this is a good thing for me. So he goes in there and essentially tells Saffer, I'm as good as anybody you got, uh, put me in an ER and I will prove my worth. Um, and you know, and you're going to want me as part of your program, which he does. And Saffer agrees. He does in fact want Mitch to be part of the program. This is something of a personal thing for Mitch. Um, when he was younger, his mother had a stroke at home. They called for help. The police ambulance service had arrived because of where he lived, um, assumed that his mother was drunk and not having a medical emergency. He pushed back on that and said, no, you don't understand. My mother doesn't drink. Cops didn't care. They said, we don't care. We think she's drunk and we're not carrying her. So he had to carry his own mother down to the ambulance and place her inside. Cops shut the back doors and drove away. 
Um, and that was the last time he saw his mother alive. So he was well aware of what the alternative was. And he becomes a Freedom House medic, uh, works his way up in the organization, and eventually becomes a director of operations and a very uh, successful and outspoken um, voice on behalf of Freedom House, kind of against uh, what what the city and the county are, are doing to them. Now, another key figure uh, later on in Freedom House's existence was Nancy Caroline. And um, why did why was she selected to become a medical director there? Because <laughs> nobody else would take the job is the short answer. Um, Nancy was a uh, young Jewish woman from the suburbs of Boston. She graduated high school early, went to Radford. This is a time before Harvard was accepting women. Um, she graduates, goes to medical school at Case Western University in Ohio, does a residency in Cleveland. And then gets a fellowship working in an ICU under Saffer, which Saffer helped develop the modern ICU. He's the father of CPR. That fellowship is was a very difficult thing to get. So it tells you sort of the caliber of person that Nancy was. As soon as she arrived, she sees an ambulance one day and just sort of idly wonders, you know, what's going on in the back of that thing? What 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 is that ambulance? And it was that question that ultimately leads to her. Um, work with Freedom House. This is 1974. Um, Freedom House has been around for a little while, and Gerald Ford has decided that he, he wants to set up this presidential commission consisting of doctors that will choose a single ambulance service to create and then field test the nation's first standardized paramedic training program. Um, the field has been around long enough now that there is a general consensus that we need to sort of, you know, have some consistency over how people are trained and equipped. So these guys, that is their mandate, go out and, and find somebody good enough to serve as the national standard. Saffer's part of that committee. He's well aware of the opportunities that will be in front of any organization who's, that's chosen. Um, but, you know, Freedom House's original training program was designed in 1966. Medicine is an ever-changing proposition. And so he needs to update what they're doing and he needs a doctor who can, he sort of, he's drawn up this training per program, this sort of renewal um, or revamping, but he needs a doctor to carry it out. And, you know, he needs somebody energetic and intelligent and aggressive. And he has all those things, but none of the people he has um, are willing to accept the job. They don't understand ambulances. They don't think very much of medicine that's practiced outside of the hospital. They don't really have a a connection, a link, a cultural connection between themselves and the guys on the ambulance. I mean, this is the early 70s. Most of these doctors are white. The people on the ambulance, with very few exceptions, are black. So there's, you know, there are a lot of bridges uh, that need to be, or a lot of uh, gaps that need to be bridged, and very few doctors are willing to do it. And in comes this brand new fellow, um, and he figures he can corner her and, you know, force her into the job. Uh, she's an incredibly strong-willed person, and she, to his surprise, she pushes back and makes a whole lot of demands. But ultimately, she says, yes, I'll, find out, I'll do it. So in January of 1975, she starts work and immediately realizes she's in way over her head. She had never heard of an EMT or a paramedic. She's never been on an ambulance. She doesn't know what they do. She doesn't know what they need of her. She doesn't know how to implement this new training program. She doesn't really understand the kind of medicine that they're practicing. She very quickly realizes that 
her job is to find a way to meld what happens inside a hospital with what happens in the street. You know, you don't have to be a genius to understand that there's no way you're going to be able to recreate hospital conditions in somebody's living room. You're going to have to, you know, sort of create a hybrid and that's her job. But she has to do it with people who don't know or trust her. To the guys at Freedom House, many doctors have come and gone. Um, all of them have been white. There's never been a very good connection. None of them have stayed for very long. And they don't know that that this young woman who's just walked through the door is going to be any different. And so she's making tremendous demands on them. Um, she's putting them through this new training program. She's listening in on their calls. She's criticizing and critiquing and questioning and you know, almost immediately some animosity begins to build up these, you know, th this is, there's just no trust. And so in order to, to make it work, she gets a cot, she puts it in the crew room, she sleeps there, she goes on calls with them, she's there seven days a week, all day, all night, works constantly to build a relationship with the people that are working on the ambulances to understand what it is they need from her to really get what the job is. Um, and then throws everything she has into this program. She goes above, above and beyond anything Saffer might have wanted. She gets them into areas of the hospital that they never would have been able to get into without her basically kicking in the door. And she gets them through this training program. And by the end of it, in the spring of 75, they are selected to be the nation's standard for paramedic training, equipping, and staffing. Now, uh, Mayor Flaherty, who we talked about earlier, he, he does eventually change his tune on, on having an EMS service, and Pittsburgh itself starts to develop its own uh, the citywide service. Uh, what role did Freedom House play in the development of, of this new service? Well, initially, none. Um, since 67, the nation's trend-setting paramedic service, um, the service that has just been labeled the national standard by a presidential commission is in no way consulted in the development of this new program. Doctors who've been involved in Freedom House, hospitals that have worked closely with Freedom House, the paramedics, none of them are in any way consulted. A new service is drawn up, new leadership is brought in, uh, a training program is devised, ambulances are uh, ordered, although as it will turn out, they are gonna be woefully late in arriving. Um, the training program keeps getting bumped back month after month after month after month. Um, there's one problem after another. It continues to get more and more costly. Essentially, in refusing to um, join forces with an existing experienced group of doctors and paramedics, the city is trying to reinvent the wheel and they're doing uh, a poor job of it. Ultimately, they, it, an agreement is, is arranged. Um, the city tells Freedom House, look, we are going to revoke your funding. 75 will be the last year that you will be in operation. Um, we're going to have this new citywide service, which we are presently recruiting for. Um, and you guys will go away. Uh, but we need some help here. So they turn to Nancy Caroline and they say, will you become our medical director? Now, she's been watching the slow development of this new system as the medics have. And they, you know, these are... They have their eyes open. They are well aware of what's going on around. The writing's on the wall. They know that they're going to be replaced. They've been very anxious about this. They have seen the medics that are coming in. They know that the new people um, have been all white and that this is, you know, clearly not something that was designed to include them. 
And so they've been coming to Nancy repeatedly saying, what are we supposed to do? How are we going to deal with this? And so when she gets this offer from the city, she says, I'll accept it on the condition that you hire everyone from Freedom House who wants to go over. Um, you have to take my people. And so the city accepts and they say, okay, fine. When you close down in October of 75, uh, we will hire on your employees. How were they treated? These were men who were experienced paramedics coming into a very new, uh, new operation. How were they treated at, at the city? Poorly. It became clear from the outset that the city had been forced to hire them, but they were not forced to keep them. Uh, you know, John Moon, who we've talked about his first day, he gets on an ambulance and he's with two paramedics who are brand new. They have no experience, but they turn to him, even though he's been doing this for five years. And they say, okay, your job is to hold the bag. Don't talk to patients. Don't touch patients. You just carry our equipment. And that is the general, um, you know, the general mood for everybody who went over there. They, they were told that they would not have to um, do any kind of retesting. They're repeatedly subjected to pass-fail tests, and they, they come on a weekly basis. If they fail them, they will be fired. Some people fail the tests and, and are fired. Um, they are moved to different shifts, so they had been told they wouldn't be moved to different shifts. Uh, crews are broken apart. They're moved, you know, scattered about town. And, um, again, they're not allowed to practice up to their uh, standards. They have they have just been involved in creating the nation's first standardized paramedic training program. So they they exist quite literally as a national standard, but yet they're not considered good enough to operate alongside people who did not go through that training program and who have no experience whatsoever. So it's a tremendous slap in the face. Within a year, half of the people who went over to the city had quit. Um, it was not a good environment, and many of them simply didn't didn't want to put up with it. Those who stayed, you know, who who just refused to uh, be pushed away, wound up. Many of them wound up having long careers with the city, but it was not an easy transition by any means. Uh, how is Freedom House memorialized today? Um, so there are a couple different things. There's a plaque that exists in Presbyterian University Hospital, which is where their base station was. It talks about Freedom House. And you know, John um, is one of the people who stuck with the city and went on to have long careers. He fought repeatedly to have emblems placed inside of ambulances that commemorate Freedom House. The problem, of course, is that an ambulance is only good for just so many miles, and then it has to be replaced. And so new ambulances don't always have them. So... You know, that is sort of a coming and going um, of recognition. There's a program now in the city of Pittsburgh called Freedom House 2.0, which recruits uh, minority students, puts them through a training program, and then um, gets them a job when they come out on the other side, uh, despite the fact that paramedicine began in Pittsburgh and that, you know, the, the first ones were black. The number of, uh, I think, the department is something like 98% white. So there have been efforts to try to uh, increase those numbers by a program called, you know, Freedom House 2.0. Largely, you know, as a result of the program being consumed by the city, by many of the people having quit, by this piece of history having been, you know, swept under the rug, it is not something that, generally speaking, um, you know, their, their legacy has not been memorialized. Their memory has not been kept very well.
So let's talk a little bit about what happened to some of these people after Freedom House closes down. Uh, John Moon, you talked to him, talked about him numerous times. He does go over to the city. What does his career look like afterwards? Um, he eventually becomes a supervisor. Uh, he, you know, he fought pretty hard to get himself promoted. Um, he wound up retiring as an assistant chief. Um, like I said, he initiated a number of uh, minority hiring programs. Um, did everything he could to try to, you know, sort of bring people along with him. Um, he had, you know, hit a, a long career that he found incredibly fulfilling, um, but he always looks back at, you know, those five years that he was at Freedom House as being among um, his best years. But he took that experience and he carried it into a very long and successful career in EMS. Let's talk about Nancy Caroline. What, what, what happens to her after she leaves Freedom House? So the first thing she does is write the book. Um, the training program that the presidential commission had uh, tasked her to write, it's called Emergency Care in the Streets. And it's the textbook that if you were coming into EMS for decades, this would be how you would train. She eventually leaves Pittsburgh. Um, she moves to Israel. She starts their national EMS program. She eventually starts their hospice program. She spent uh, about seven years working in East Africa as one of the AMREF flying doctors, started this huge food program in East Africa, um, moved back and spent the rest of her life um, in Israel. And uh, the other key figure, Peter Saffer, what, what happened to him afterwards? So he opens up a uh, resuscitative research lab, which is eventually um, named after him at, at Pitt. Um, spends a lot of his life studying resuscitative medicine. I mean, if you look at how we uh, pump chilled fluids through people, the idea of cooling someone who's in cardiac arrest to preserve organ tissue, this is a product of, of the sort of work he was doing. And again, he was nominated three separate times for the Nobel Prize in Medicine. So he continued, um, continued working right up until his death in the early 2000s. Now you mentioned that you were a paramedic at one point as well. Give us a sense of what, what does it feel like when you're in an ambulance on your way to a call and you know, uh, it, you're in the midst of an emergency? Um, it's exciting, uh, terrorizing and, or terrifying, but then also mundane. Um, exciting because you are, you are gonna be brought into this really incredible moment where anything could happen and you're, you're going to see things that very few people will get to see and you're going to be called on to do things that very few people will be called on to do. Terrifying because you know from your experience that it can go wrong, that the slightest mistake or, um, you know, there could be a hitch in the situation and a patient who might otherwise have survived will not. But also, you know, it's a bit mundane because, you know, it is simply your job. It's, it's 11.15 on Wednesday morning. And, you know, yes, you're being sent out to a person who has just been shot, but you are going to deal with that. You're going to drop them off. You're going to clean up the mess and then you're going to go to lunch. It's, it's what you're there to do. You know, you clocked in in the morning. The reason that you have health care is that you are arriving at this call. So it's a very strange experience. You know, it, uh, it, is, at, it is at once um, extraordinary, but also, you know, very, very ordinary. It's a, it's a really rewarding um, but challenging job. Well, we've been speaking with Kevin Hazard. He is the author of American Sirens, the incredible story of the black man who became America's first paramedics. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been an honor. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books 
as well as other PCN programs are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.